So we've got hibernating Perth Heat manager Andy Kyle in studio today. Um, not much going on from an ABL perspective, but uh, all of the, well, most of the states and their high performance programs are sort of scrambling to give their talented youngsters uh, a forum or an opportunity to show off and continue developing because it's been sort of two years of not much in the way of elite baseball action. So um, the in WA, uh, and that's really what we're going to talk about today, the the baseball has been alive in the last couple of weeks with uh, a, sh- a showcase and uh, I thought, well, who better than the guy running it to sort of step us through what talented youngsters are doing in the baseball space. And, and we were just chatting off air and, and Andy was sort of stepping through how they've tried to make it like a, a proper spring training type environment, which was, sounded awesome. So um, welcome, Andrew. Let's uh, let's kick off. What's the Give us the overview. What's been going on? So First of all, with the with the heat and the ABL, what's what's the update? Yeah, we're still um, still in conversations around trying to uh, play some games in February, Stu. So we're working with the organisation and still waiting on some clearances from the um, government on what the restrictions will be once we open up in February. But just trying to get organised and seeing what that process will be, and um, hopefully, if things align, we we might be able to play some ball in in February and get some teams in here and potentially travel. But a lot of that will do with. Uh, seeing what the restrictions are and hopefully we can make a plan from there in the next probably week we'll know more so i'm guessing that would be a very west australian player focused perth heat without imports and those types of things yeah absolutely so absolutely absolutely no imports um probably a mixture of some of the guys that are around and, and getting for spring training and um probably a mixture of some of the young talented futures kids mm. and you just obviously have field have bats and balls willing to play anyone who's able to get in here um to the best of our ability, but yeah, it's not like you can hit the road and get stuck in other states if it's sort of quarantine and whatnot. So it'd be pretty disjointed, I'd imagine, if anything comes up. Yeah, it's just just looking at what's happened in Melbourne versus Adelaide. Um, you know, some guys went down with COVID, trying to scramble and get some players. So it's not going to be like a unique, um, normal ABL type roster. I think there'll be a lot of chops and changing in um, just making sure. Teams, I think, are really just getting a squad together and, and picking who they have available from week to week. So that's effectively two ABL seasons almost written off. Um, has the old dog still got life in it or where, where do you see it going? Yeah, it's it's tough. It, uh, it's been a long two years, obviously only playing half a year last year and you know when you look at it, only playing 15 games over oh, two years and if we don't play this year, it's nearly three years before we've played a, a proper season. So... It's tough on that mindset of keeping guys up and ready, but um, you know it's it's out of our control a little bit. So we've just got to main, maintain focused on what we can control, and hopefully, you know, if things don't happen this year, just reset our reset everyone, and hopefully next year we can get back to being normal. And and uh, I think there'll be a lot of people excited to, to get back on the field mm. and hopefully get some interest back. And the other the bit, yeah, the other bit that we've been talking about offline was just. COVID has not only impacted the highest level, it's also impacted junior sport, particularly, you know, like the club sport is still going on, but most of the elite or the state-based programs that would compete in a national tournament has been canned. So that's would be two years of national tournaments and national teams that have gone by the wayside. But the bit that was quite interesting we were talking about was the level of talent, particularly in West Australia at the moment, is really high. And you've got these kids who are missing out showcasing that. So I guess that's the nature of... The conversation today was just around this showcase event. What, what's the purpose of that? And, and A, how hard was it to pull it all together? But 
yeah, ultimately, what are you trying to achieve or give to players by putting this thing together? Yeah, the first one was obviously 12 months ago and that was a real um, initial program to to fill the void of the National Youth Championships not going ahead. So every state did it slightly different and um, we put together a pretty good two-week showcase and we kind of learnt from that. Um, it's a bit of a two-fold thing. So obviously trying to replace the National Youth Championships with some quality baseball gameplay and then realigning with our national pathways. So trying to talent identify um, our best athletes, profile them, give them opportunities to get information to scouts, colleges, um, and just keep ticking some boxes and giving them opportunities to perform at a high level and have high com- competitive games. So how many players you bring through this year? So this year we have 64 kids um, across the two age groups, so ranging from roughly 14 to 18 years old. Um, we've split them into four teams, so we have two under-18 uh, teams, the Bulls and the Biscuits, and then we have two under-16 teams, which are the River Dogs and, and Hot Rods. So aligning with the Tampa Bay Rays, who is our kind of affiliate over here with the, with the Perth Heat, so we have a good relationship with them, and we've promoted it through the Ray Showcase this year. Mm. And so how were kids identified to participate? Were these all high-performance uh, players or how, how did they get into this program? Yeah, so a mixture. We had a tryout process uh, last was it September, um, and then pretty much did some combine testing. Uh, the six things we did a bit of gameplay, and then we kind of picked a thirty-two man squad for for each group. So it was a mixture of the high performance athletes, and then a bunch of kids who we you know it was actually really exciting. I got to see a bunch of kids who I haven't really seen over the last eighteen months that have kind of just haven't had opportunities to to be around competitive baseball. So it's been really cool to see some kids pop up and grow and develop over the last 12 months and it's really exciting to see what the future holds with some of these age groups. So the I guess I, I was just fascinated. Like This is a two-week process and I didn't realise how much how much A went into it and B how full the days were and you sort of said you were trying to replicate a spring training type environment and also I think for a lot of people who – may have never participated like back in my day like a national state tournament was a two-week event games every day pretty full-on um kind of like a spring training type environment but i'd be really interested for you to sort of take everyone through what week one looked like what week two looked like and what sort of commitment was involved from the players and the coaches that participated yeah, it's a massive event. Um, probably, you know, as big as it organising a national youth championship, to be honest. Um, I guess if I could explain it, it's probably in between a national youth championship, um, spring training professional type environment, and also a perfect game um, showcase event. So we have a combination of combine testing, we have full day activities, and then, a um, you know, we played each age group's played seven games in so, total for the two weeks as well. So the combine testing, what what are we what's that? Yeah, so the testing is basically we're looking at looking at the tools again. So profiling their tools. So we do run and gun arm speed with the light gates out and do their sixty yard sprints. We get some rhapsody exit velocities. We we look at the guys throwing across a diamond, right field to the third base, um, catches pop, pop times. And then obviously pitches. It's more about in game um, during the during the event. So just trying to profile their tools and see where they rank and sit amongst their peers. And then across the country, we'll kind of look at the data and see how individuals rank, 
you know, between their peers across the mm. across the whole country. And any stand, you don't have to name players and whatnot, but any standout sort of numbers that popped up. Yeah, you know what was really exciting? Um, probably the last five years, we haven't had a lot of speed um, and we had probably six guys under seven seconds this year in yeah, right. 60 yards, which is really exciting for us. Um, one of the one we had a sixteen or well, fifteen at the time. He's just turned sixteen, ran a six six seven um, sixty, which is pretty cool. We had a couple of guys run in the six sevens and a couple of six nines. So for us as a state, that's a progression forward, and it's uh, it's pretty cool to see again. Mm. You know, we had a number of guys, you know, over ninety in the in the running gun. I think Cookie, who's eighteen, touched ninety eight in his running gun, which is so just for, which for is really cool. Those who may not be aware, running gun is when you you're ready to take a run up and unload, basically. But yeah. what is that an indicator of? Just max, you know, arm, arm strength, arm, yeah. arm speed. So just seeing what's in the arm, and then obviously that projects to where they sit on the mound and position wise. So mm. obviously, the higher, the faster they can throw, then it's more projectable on the field and what they can do on the field. And we've we talked in previous podcasts about the tools, and I, I'm assuming players now as they go through this, these types of testing and combine have a better understanding of. You know, if I'm running a certain speed, I'm now in the f- in the conversation for consideration. Those types of things. How much time are you spending with players saying, "Hey, you, you know, you're you're right there to be considered for a college opportunity or a professional opportunity or an ABL opportunity"? Is that part of this as well? It really is. It's both for the players and also the parents and understanding where kind of their kids sit amongst the group as mm-hmm. well. Um, and it, it's just good. I speak to the players. It's information for them. It's just data, but it's it's real data, so they can sit see where they they sit amongst their group. Um, I tell the players they they can't get overwhelmed and compare themselves too much. Um, I think some of the kids can get down on themselves if they go, oh, you know, I'm only seventy eight or I'm a seven and a half. So it's more for the players to see where they sit and where they need to improve on. Or, you know, for some of these kids, it's like, well. Now I'm at this level. That's really cool. And now, what do I do with that? Mm. So, um, it's yeah, it's a it's a combination of all that. Um, but it's really cool for our profiling for these kids to to know that they have that tool, or maybe they don't have that tool, and that's something they need to work towards to improve. Yeah, and I, the bit that I thought was pretty interesting is when I we were chatting offline, and you sort of said, "Look, of the sixty to sixty-five kids that are there, there might be a handful of kids that." Are scuffling a little bit to hold their own, and it's a pretty good ratio. There's only a small amount of youngsters who are this for their, and I'm guessing it's most of the first or early players where this is, and it's probably just physical that hey, I'm just not quite where I need to be yet. So that's it's a, probably a good sign that at high performance programs are doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, it really is, and and like we said, I, I kind of keep reminding the coaches a lot of these kids this is the most they've ever done, and this is the highest level that they've actually probably played at. They've just never been around this sort of environment and event for before. So, you know, when, when we look at the 18s kids and then the 16s kids, you've got some kids who are three or four years younger and it's, you know, you look at them on the field and it's just a massive difference in the size and how they move. So for me, it's exciting to see, get these kids now and, and get them used to the program and get them used to what it takes. And then hopefully in 12 to 18 months, we'll see massive jumps, mm. jumps with these kids. I had it as a, um, just as a note, to ask you, but you kind of got there before I was ready. But I guess you know you've been in obviously high levels of baseball for quite some time, and been around player development for, for quite some time. And a couple of things you've touched on is just the physical improvements you've seen, particularly with some of these eighteen-year-old players. It, 
can you tell that players are in the weight room earlier now and they're, de- they're physically, you know, there's physical development in terms of hitting puberty, then there's physical development in, as in I'm putting in the work. Are more kids putting in work earlier from, from what you're seeing? They are, and that's been a massive focus from us uh, from a high-performance point of view, um, first of all. And having a partnership with Diamond Fitness, we've now got a weights facility at the ballpark. So last winter, guys could come to practice, get their work in, go lift, or some guys got to practice, lifted, then then we worked out. So just having that consistency of being able to you know lift at least three times a week is starting to make a massive difference. And we see the top-tiered kids are the ones that really get after it. Um, you know, some kids still don't like the gym it's kind of new for them it's you know you can't make kids love the gym but we are seeing a massive improvement i think from the last 12 to 18 months in in um having a focal point of really making the kids get in there and and do their work so i think the next 12 to 18 months are going to be even more exciting seeing these kids develop over over that period of time and even for the 16s is seeing what the 18s kids are actually doing and getting in the gym i think that's really important as well because they go oh this is where i need to be at well i just uh, that was the point i was just about to make from a cultural perspective if you're you know, the, the early, the kids who are there their first time can see that the big dogs are all getting after it. You either, you know, you step up or you step out because you have to, right? So that's, from a cultural perspective, if that's starting to become ingrained, that can only be a positive. Yeah, I and mean, we've spoken about it before. I mean, the kids in the States and things like that, you know, they're full programs in high school. They're all lifting from 13 years old. Mm. So at some stage we've got to get in there and do more work and, and try and match these guys because, you know, realistically we're two to three years behind developmentally um, and workload-wise from from international ballplayers. So the earlier we can get them in there and, you know, we speak to the guys and parents get a bit gun-shy with it because they're like, oh, you know, scared of the kids getting it. They're not in there bench pressing 100 kilos, you know. They're going through movement patterns. They're learning how to train in the gym. A lot of the first 12 months with our younger kids is is development programs in the gym where they learn to do the proper lifts. Um, They learn to control their bodies more. And then hopefully once they get through that phase, they start to build up their lifting cycle and, and start to get after it a bit. So I guess week one, well, like what was the schedule like? Yeah, so really exciting. You know, we had a couple of training sessions um, prior to Christmas and then just before the New Year just to make sure the guys were ticking over and getting their arms in shape. Um, then the first Monday we had our combine testing day, so that was all about kind of being on the field showcasing their tools. And then we got straight in for the first week. Um, so we tried to replicate it like spring training. The kids, we had caterers come in. So the kids come to the field at 7.38, have breakfast, um, get into their training clothes. Then we'll do some early work, um, which is more position specific. So pitchers go there, do their thing. Catchers go to the shed. Alex Hall worked the catchers out. Uh, we did an infield group and an outfield group. So really basically breaking down the fundamental tools and footwork and isolating certain things with drills. Then we'd go into our active stretch throwing programs, um, which were specific to their positions. Then we'd go break back into some individual defence, so half an hour of individual defence. That was more replicating kind of, might be fly balls, specific blocking drills, um, infielders would do double plays, might be specific work around what that looks like. and then we'd break into a team defence. So we'd cover off a team defence for the day. So it might be cuts and relays, going through pickoffs and holding runners, etc. And then the teams broke into their uh, BP for the day. So 
most days we'd do some bu- double barrel, so we'd get the machines out, the guys would do velo or curveballs, we'd have some dead arm, normal BP, um, work through the cages, so they'd get a good hour of hitting on field. Then we'd break for lunch, the guys would go eat for an hour, um, chill out, and then depending on the day um, and if they had a game that afternoon, so they'd either play a game, get ready for a game, or they'd go, we'd do maybe a machine pitch game where we did situational work or a little bit of extra work, depending on what team um, had on that afternoon. So that was basically the general crux of the first week. Um, Huge volume of work for these guys. Um, but um, just trying to get them into the feel of being on the field and, and what it takes. So I'm guessing there's a few kids that by the end of week one were like, what have I got myself into? What From both a mental and physical, what were the key takeaways from that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and just from past experiences, first few days they really get after it, they're excited and then the last couple of days of that first week you can see guys drag, they're tired, their arms start to break down after two or three days, especially the younger kids, the under-16s. They're just not used to that volume um, and they don't know how to control themselves, um, whereas the 18s are a little bit stronger and, and know when to go and when to kind of pull back a little bit more. Um, so just the general volume work, uh, the guys start to get really tired and, and break down a little bit. But this second week, after a couple of lighter days, we see them all start to pick up. Their legs start to get underneath them again and they get used to the, the workload. I was just interested, so it's obviously a showcase two weeks, but it sounds like there's a lot of coaching involved. Is is, is a two-week snapshot like this enough to see dramatic improvements in player development or is it more you sort of plant these seeds and then they start to grow in the next couple of weeks as they start to implement? Well, how does it work from, from a coaching and development perspective? Yeah, look, I spoke to my staff and I've said to them – Two weeks isn't long enough to make massive mechanical changes. Um, learning takes a long time with with changing how your habits are and, and how you move. So uh, I spoke to the code. We can't expect to make massive changes with these guys just overnight. Um, but little changes we can make, and it's more about giving these guys, like you said, planting seeds, giving them drill work to do that they can go away and continue to work on those things and hopefully make those make those changes over time um little bits and pieces you can change and you know just some small mechanical changes and and how they apply themselves to specific drill work yes we can make some of those changes um but yeah there is a lot of coaching especially in the individual morning sessions is where um you know i spoke to my staff about really applying detail to what we do on the field and and putting them through specific drills that they can actually really improve and and know what the expectation is of um, those general fundamentals. Mm. So then you roll into week two, and then it sounds like there's more games involved there, but how does week two differ from week one, and what what are the outcomes or the expected outcomes different, or what's the approach with the second week of the showcase? Yeah, so the first week we played four games. Um, we rolled innings. Um, we only played generally between five to seven innings. It was more about making sure all the pitches were aligned. They got opportunity to bullpen. They got in the game, throw a couple innings, you know, no more than 30, 40 pitches, um, getting a lot of guys' opportunities to play different spots, see what they could do. And then this week it's about preparing for proper games. So we're playing seven-inning games, um, full game mode, so... Teams have to make um, changes between innings. Pitches have to be ready. It's more um, kind of, here we go, this is it. So um, just building to that point of time. Mm. And then I suppose 
I've got a, now a ton of questions sort of on the back end of all this, but from you know, it's called a showcase. How do you get this information in the front in front of scouts, professional teams, college teams? Like how ideally teams and colleges want to eyeball players. Obviously there's video available, but how are you packaging up this information to make it available to yeah. teams? So as you said, um, trying to get as much data as we can. So obviously, you know, we have the light gates, we'll get their times, we'll get stopwatches out, get guys running up the line, um, just trying to get as much data on all the players as we can. Uh, we video their BP rounds, so trying to get as many swings um, with with individuals. Um, we've got Rapsodo out there, so with the Rapsodo machine, we get their exit velocities and, and profile their swings on the machine, and you know I'll upload those to ha- that have accounts. The guys that don't have accounts, we've written them down and we'll put them to each individual. And then, um, obviously, yesterday's game, so the last three games, we've also broadcast so um, on YouTube, so we can provide links to those that actually want to watch mm. the games and see specific athletes. But basically my role after this will be compacting all the information, profiling each individual, um, and then through the use of Andy Rodell with Baseball Australia, he can use that information sent to colleges. We'll send out a database of all our top kids, basically to all the scouts, so they can have a look at their data and then they can touch back with me and, and ask me for, mm. for more information if, if they require it. So... You're, you have a role in the national under eighteen team as well as the head coach there. Are you, you know, I think we talked last year about well, we'll still name a team anyway. Is that still going ahead? And how how do you put a, team, a national team together if you are off these types of showcases? Yeah, so basically the same as last year. So our plan is to have a national team camp in April again. Yep. So hopefully picking the best 50, 60 kids across the country, and that's the whole one of the one of the reasons for the showcases so for each state to um put on a show and get some data and talent identify the best players so they um, nominate their group. players to go to the yeah so then um we'll look at all the data each high performance coach will probably come up with a list of their top end kids and then with the use of all this data and video we'll be able to kind of match up against the rest of the guys around mm. the country so could be an instance where, hey, here's my top ten guys. Um, here's my top, my top six. Uh, I think are legit. My top four and my my bottom four might be bubble guys. Well, how do they compare against mm. Melbourne's bottom four? And uh, use the bottom four. I mean, they're, they're the the best the best yeah. kids. Yeah. But we need to kind of align where we're at across the country. Well, that, that actually ties in one of the next questions I've got. So bear with me because it could be a bit long winded. But you know. You've been to numerous tournaments and state competitions, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure every year there's a kid that just comes out of nowhere. Like, And some kids just flourish. There's a two-week window. They're playing every day. So have, have there been any kids across? You don't have to name their names. But like, are the kids that have just come out of nowhere and there's two weeks? Like, I didn't expect that. And they've really flourished in this environment? Or how is, how's yeah, have there been any sleepers? That's what I'm always interested in to, to understand. Yeah, I, I think so, um, and it's a good conversation. Even at the national level, like we pick these guys, but in three months' time, some of these guys go through the roof, and mm. then we don't have the you know the planning on the national, the actual World Cups, not till August. That's six months away, and you know we spoke about it earlier. There's a lot of the development that goes on in six mm. months and three months at this age group, so. 
there's always going to be kids that potentially improve out of sight. There's other kids that plateau a little bit more. Um, within this two weeks, probably the younger group, I've noticed the biggest change. And that group I don't know as well. I haven't been around them as much. But there's been a few kids in that group that, especially this second week, have just really um, opened my eyes in how they've played the game and they've just got better and better as the mm. as the two weeks has gone on and just being on the field every day. So that's been exciting for me to see the changes and see what they can do. Well, and that sort of ties into my question about the Australian team selection is, you know, you go to a national tournament, kid just shoots out the lights for two weeks, like, well, we've got to invite them along. They don't really have this two week. It's more... It's a longer coaches high performance coaching assessment, and I'd just be really interested to get your thoughts on whether or not you think you'll get a more balanced team. Or and I've like I'm totally never, never been involved, but on national team selection, will you sometimes take a guy who may not have performed as well as at the tournament, but the, all the tools are there and we need to have him in the, you know, just really interesting for how you find the balance and whether or not this might be a better way to select that team because it's over a longer period of time with more data. Really keen to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a tough one. I think the same the same things happen every year. It's like you know what the guy's tools are at, you know their ability-wise, and you know what impact they could potentially have at the Nationals, but then you also get those, like you said, those guys that just kind of ball out and, you know, are on fire and, you know, potentially they can make a difference. So it, it, is, a, it is a touchy one and, and leading in. Um, speaking of Crooksy this year, I think we've got a really good plan in place for if it happens this year, but also moving forward. Um, we're trying to bring more kids to this first camp so we get more opportunity to see guys. Um, then picking a squad from that, then the guys go away to their high-performance programs, obviously continue to work out. And then the kind of plan moving forward is potentially we take two teams over to, say, the States, Right. We play in, say, perfect game tournaments. We play colleges. We pick the best team that's performing during that phase. And then and they go the straight tournament. into yeah. the World Cup. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. And then what happens is the team that don't make it, they stay on and still play tournaments, um, showcase, and potentially get seen still, mm. um, play some perfect game tournaments. So, you know, I think that's a really cool model because we're picking the best team available at that time um, and are performing well leading straight into the World Cup. So Well it makes it makes too much sense because we we just ramp up, ramp down, ramp up, ramp down, whereas this allows you to ramp and then, you know, if you've got two teams, they're all the best players in Australia, but then you roll through with the best players you're performing. And happen to be hot, yeah. yeah. So that makes so much more sense. I mean the, if you look back the the world championship we've had the most success has probably been on the back end of the old MLB academies where the guys have been working out for, say, a month and then, like, Canada's come in to play games. So they play a three- to five-game series mm. against a high-level team and then they're ready to go, you know. Mm. So kind of trying to do that sort of plan, but obviously things have changed mm. these days. We don't have the MLB academy and stuff, so we're trying to adapt and and find different models mm. of, of how we can do that. So um, I'm quite excited to see that model potentially come into place, whether it's this year with or um, in future years when things open up a mm. bit more easily. So the other bit I was interested in, and once again, you don't have to name names, but of, like of the 65, 63 to 65 kids you've got there, um, we were talking off air, there was, I think there's five or six that are already committed to go to, to college in the US. But of that group like what 
What proportion, what percentage do you think are legitimate pro prospects? Look, it's getting really tough right now. Um, it's getting tougher and tougher to sign. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. What I should say is what percentage of kids have signable tools? Yeah, look, probably got – at the moment, I mean, I'm only looking at the under-18s because yep. the 16s are still – they've got a couple of years um, still to go. It's probably five guys with some signable tools right now. Yep. And then I guess the thing that is increasingly becoming popular is college baseball, just another avenue. What of, of the group from what you've seen and, you know, what volume of guys have a legitimate chance to go and play college baseball? Yeah, I'm really excited about our under-18s group at the moment. Um, some kids with some really good tools, some raw tools, um, and I think there's a – you know, I think there's eight to ten guys that in 12 months' time um, are ready for college and, and good colleges too. And I think that's probably the big difference is getting kids to a level where they can go to really good schools um, and then really get better over those two years mm. of just being around it more. And that's exciting for me. You know, I was speaking to Warwick Sawpold yesterday and, you know, just about the future of the ABL and I was just sitting there looking at the field of the five kids that are going to college this year and then potentially another five, six really exciting players that I think will get an opportunity in the next 12 months to go to some, some really good schools as well. And if they continue on in, in four or five years' time, that's, that's the future of the ABL mm. Perth Heat team. Well, that's is, where, you know, the, the Perth Heat where I suppose the tail end of your playing career and then into your management career, like that was just all – those championship teams are all based on – really strong junior players who either well, most of those guys went on to pro careers but yeah it's just those waves of talent that's the that's what ends up becoming the lifeblood of the club so yeah, it's pretty um it's pretty cool to hear there's that kind of volume of players coming through that are um on on that skill set range are, are, are very high so that's um it's really positive um the other thing i was interested you you mentioned your it's a bit sort of oddball, but I always find this sort of fascinating is you sort of had the Ten Commandments for, for culture and the program you're trying to build. I was just fascinated to sort of, you know, what sort of culture are you trying to build? And you we chatted and you were talking about being good people and getting guest speakers in who may have been involved in the game, but a lot of younger players wouldn't have a clue who they are anymore, but just talking about say you be a day-to-day good person and look out for teammates and stuff. I'm really interested just to spend some time talking about what you're trying to do from that perspective. Yeah, um, it's been a massive component of what we're doing and, um, you know, Lockie Dale and Dean White behind the scenes have been really vocal in this and we got our Bob Ossie, who's a Baseball WA Hall of Famer, um, came in and did a workshop with the coaching staff to start with just to, just to talk about where we kind of want to set our example and how we want to work with these kids um, and then putting the kids at the forefront of what we're trying to do through this showcase. So for us it's about bigger than just showcasing your tools and and what they do on field. It's about creating um, the people because, as we know, maybe one kid in this whole group will go on and make baseball as a career. Mm. So the reality is it's really difficult and it's it's a tough world out there. How do we make these kids better people? How do we get them... You know, creating that culture where um, we want them to play the game the right way, we want them to be good people, and then they take that back into club ball or go to college or in our ABL and just increase the strength of, of where we sit amongst the pedestal. But um, So that was the forefront. And then speaking to Bob Ossie, you know, I was speaking to him about the culture on the field and 
we just got chatting and, you know, we've, we thought it would be a great idea to come up with these Ten Commandments about what these players need to think about, how they want to look and act on the field and basically starting the forefront of the culture for baseball WA and how we act as a group in, in this country. Mm. So um, we came up with a list and we've presented the kids. We've got it in the dugouts, um, speak to my coaching staff and, and make the kids accountable for, accountable for what, that looks like and and their actions so just some simple things but i won't go over it all um obviously it's it's kind of pertinent to our group and and we want to keep that within our group but just how they act on the field how they you know run out balls how being a great teammate and what that looks like Mm. um on a day-to-day basis you know um just having respect for the game and, and the people around us and and the environment that we're playing in so we think that's really important and um it's been so far, it's, it's been a good experience for them. And some of the kids have been made accountable. You know, they haven't played the whole game because maybe they didn't run out of uh, a ball or they weren't a good teammate. Mm. So um, I think it's really important to actually set that tone. I think having chatted to a few professional players, Australian professional players, through this forum, um, you know, like pro baseball's cutthroat. Like you're, you're effectively – you can get ahead if one of your teammates fails. And – um, I think the interesting piece in talking to Australian players is there is that, you know, it sounds hokey, but it's that mateship element and, um, you know, Australians tend to be good clubhouse people because they are looking out for their mate and that sort of stuff. But it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting to talk about the notion of just being a good teammate because particularly in Australia, the chance of you making a professional career out of it is slim. So, you know, foster a good environment and friends for life and those types of things. So it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a really positive sign and, and actually trying to build a culture, a development culture out from 16 upwards is is pretty cool. So I, I, the other thing I was thinking about while you were chatting is like most of your coaches and your coaching staff have sort of been people who have been around baseball and WA for quite some time. It's not like people blowing in one year at a time and it's a pretty established group of good guys who run it. So, you know, it doesn't sound insurmountable to be able to set something up like this and really – ingrain it into the program so um yeah absolutely and one of the big focuses as well even for our staff is is taking it back to club land you know we've spoken previously about trying to build club ball up to to be better and you know our staff we want them to go back to their clubs and set some of these standards and you know they'll have their own standards because you know depending on their club and how it all runs but also the playing group is we want them to go back and be the leaders mm. you know what i mean and and that's the most difficult thing is it's easy to do what you ask when you're in front of myself and the group you know what i mean mm. like there's an expectation got guys around you what we want them to do is go back and when no one's looking at you what are you going to do and mm. that's been a big focus this week is you know what you do when no one's looking at you what are the what workload do you do and on your own and that's going to separate you from the guy next to you is how you act when when your coaching staff aren't there and, and, and telling you what to do. So that's that's a big component as well. And you showed me a video of a kid, young player who, you know, hit a sure single, hard double, um, and just came flying out of the box and slid into second base with a double where it could have just been a really comfortable single and you know, the the A, we were both pretty fired up by seeing the kid just get after it like that. But you take that to club ball, A, you'll dominate club ball because you'll be hitting doubles and triples when people aren't expecting it. But, yeah, as you said, if that player's teammates can say, hang on, if you run hard, you can be rewarded, That that's what you want permeating down. So, um, yeah, it was really positive to, to see and, um, 
just from the group of players you've got, especially the elite players who get after it, it seems like it's heading in the in the right direction. Yeah, and I'm lucky. I've you know we've had a good twelve months with those HP kids, and they really set the tone. So in this environment, they've been outstanding this week, um, especially the older kids who have been around a little bit longer and in setting those expectations and it's really important for those younger kids to watch and see what it should look like um, because that's a level that we want to get to mm. you know and and that's how we want to play the game and that's how they should play the game all the time not just at this event they should go back to club ball and dominate and and make others around them better so that's been a big component with the culture and you know we wanted it to be a, a big event as far as you know just going back to to setting the standards of being good people. We've had a psychologist come in and talk to the kids about anxiety and travelling and being away from home and, and how hard it is, um, you know, being a being a, an athlete. Mm. Um, we've had Kevin Hooker come in and talk about scouting and tools and what that profile looks like and, and Bob Ossie spoke to the group about what he thinks it is to be a good person mm. as well. So, and, and Dan Calvary did a bit of a public speaking talk with the kids. So we tried to make this a really holistic event mm. where it's not just about on field and um, I think that's it's a really important um, cog to the whole piece. So if... if and conscious of time here, two more questions. But is this something you see national tournaments come back online next year? Which you surely, <laughs> surely, <laughs> we've been saying that for twelve months. But yeah, surely bring you back to normal. But can you bolt? Is this showcase like you know you're talking about the Australian team going away, playing, and then selecting out of it? But could you do a showcase like this prior to a national tournament? Or is that too much of a time demand? Well, funny, myself and Dean White were talking about this earlier in the week. Um, I think the scope to potentially run this leading into the National Youth Tournament. Um, the time of the year could be difficult because you're talking over Christmas, mm. school holidays and things like that. But in, a di- in an ideal world, we'd probably have our pre-work staff, our tryouts and things, maybe work out. And then you pay, play a little seven-day or do a little seven-day showcase Maybe you've got your squad together, so you pick however many, and then you pick your team from there, and then uh, three or four days later, you, you yep. hit the road and you go. Yep. So I think this model can be stripped back. You can be bigger, it can be stripped back. You can change and adapt it to what you need. Mm. So I think we've got that blueprint now, um, which is really solid, solid and really exciting. And just depending on the year and the calendar and how everything else fits, I think you can adapt it mm. to the need of, of each state. So, you know, whether we ran it in September as a tryout phase for your nationals and, and try and set those standards and really build it all up and then they just work out leading in, there's different models I think you mm. can do from it. But um, I think the blueprint really – it's kind of been a blessing, I think – Missing the nationals and then putting it on the states to run their own programs. I think we've learnt a lot from it the last mm. two years, so I, I think it's exciting. So, what next? The players finish this, and then we do they do you take any of this data into this is then how we select high performance athletes and whatnot, or what are you doing from here? Yeah, so I spoke to the kids prior. Um, we're actually picking picking an under sixteen squad, so we're planning on um, the national bodies planning on having under sixteen youth tournament in July holidays um, that's hopefully going ahead so we'll pick a squad of probably 23 to 25 kids for the under 16 so from there on they'll go back to club ball for a while and then we'll get the group back together and, and program it mm. to lead into the to the youth tournament 
um, I'm talent identifying for the high performance program. So myself and a few staff will get together and kind of go through the data and look at the playing group and identify who we want to put into the program for next year and invite those kids down. Mm. Um, so that'll be a, a big process and an important process on my end. And then obviously for the under-18 group, it's talent identifying for the national team. Mm. Well, mate, I really appreciate your time and, and it's just kind of cool to see how states are just scrambling to try and put something meaningful together for the talented kids and to sort of keep player development ticking over. So um, thanks very much and really appreciate you popping in and, um, yeah, it's, it's cool to see. Thank you very much. And uh, the uh, championship games are tonight, so follow it on live stream.